Look, I, I, I'm not sure how to explain how excited I am to have uh, this guest today. For those of you who are great advocates of free speech, followers of the issues of free speech, from the academic to the practical, uh, you will know this gentleman, uh, Jakob Umchungama. Uh, Jakob, what an absolute honor to have you on here today. My pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to our conversation, so thanks for having me. For those who may not, look, we, we can't go through the entire list of achievements <laughs> and work that Jakob uh, does, but amongst other things, he runs now a relatively new, I would say, think tank called Justitia. It's focused on human rights, on freedom of speech, of course, notions of the, the rule of law. But his most recent, for me, claim to fame is an absolutely incredible, incredible book entitled Free Speech. It's, it's something which, well, actually, it was only published in February. Free speech, a history of society, uh, Socrates, sorry, to social media. Jakob, talk us through a little bit about yourself, the work, the book, the whole premise it would be just amazing. Yeah, so um, it, it, it's based on a podcast I did on the history of free speech that stretches back to, I think, 2017. And the reason I got interested in free speech is not because I was born and raised in a totalitarian state uh, or got sent off to a gulag. Uh, I am born and raised in, in Copenhagen in Denmark, which is a pretty stable liberal democracy. Uh, but then in 2005, a Danish newspaper published a number of cartoons depicting the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And that sort of made Denmark the uh, epicenter of global battle of values over the relationship between free speech uh, and religion. And, and, uh, and that got me really interested in this concept. Why do we discuss free speech? Why is it important? And how important is it? What does its absence mean? And... And uh, where does this principle, this value come from? And, and so it's been a bit of an, an obsession of mine <laughs> ever since. And, and so the, the book is, is my sort of attempt to, to discover the, the ancient roots of free speech and, and how it has been developed over time across cultures and, and different societies. Well, I think that's actually a really good place to start and begin teasing things out. So again, for, for listeners, free speech, a history from Socrates to, to social media was only out in what, February this year. But I think what's really interesting for me, Jacob, is you are looking, as you say, at the history, but how it now manifests. But really importantly to me, it's it tries to illustrate the value and the benefits of free speech to say that this is actually an important, if you will, pillar in the world, certainly in democracies. And if I might, you, you seem to be contrasting it, it. We certainly have in New Zealand, I don't know what it's like in other parts of the world, that those of us who are trying to champion free speech are made to look like those protecting scoundrels, uh, lunatics and idiots. Free speech has been warped to be some sort of nasty, hateful dynamic where, in fact, your book, your thinking, your writing says, hold on, there's real value. There has been right back from, well, Socrates to today. Yeah, um, I think, you know, whenever you live in a democracy, especially I would say New Zealand and Denmark are both sort of stable democracies with, with robust institutions and where... Um, if you criticize your prime minister, you're very unlikely to go to prison. Um, the same, the, the, the same, the, the same uh, in Denmark. So it's not like in Russia where you get picked off the streets if you uh, if, if you protest. And in those societies where people have grown up with free speech, they come to take it for granted. And so when free speech is tested in open democracies, it's going to be those who really challenge majoritarian beliefs, who hold views that are not accepted that are wrongly rejected by, by uh, large uh, segments uh, of society. But if you don't stand up for free speech 
in those cases, then really free speech does not mean a lot uh, and, and is not really a, a, a principle, a fundamental uh, principle. And of course, that has been the case throughout history that those who challenge core beliefs have, have, have been viewed as uh, lunatics and, and extremists uh, and, and radicals. You know, everyone from abolitionists who wanted to do away with slavery uh, in America in, in, in the 19th century were seen as, as, as radicals. Um, civil rights movement were, were seen as radicals. Those who, who championed uh, religious toleration or even more secular forms of, of government uh, in the events that led up to the Enlightenment were, were seen as deeply irresponsible uh, and, and, and so on. But more fundamentally, I would, you know, there's a tendency, I think, in in liberal democracies to view free speech as entrenching unequal power relations as really uh, being sort of a, a weaponized against vulnerable minorities and, and those traditionally persecuted. Whereas I try to show in the book that really free speech might be the most powerful engine of, of human equality that our species has ever stumbled upon and has been absolutely essential for every persecuted, marginalized group, from racial uh, to religious minorities to, to uh, providing agency, uh, empowering women in, in, in the rights for quality of sexes. Um, and, and I don't think you can, I don't think we've reached a stage of, of human evolution where you can just say, oh, well, you know, we've, we've tapped all the benefits of, of free speech. Now we can pull up the ladder and, and, and ensure that, that it's not being abused by, <laughs> by, by anyone else because we, are so enlightened that we we know what is right and wrong and what is good and bad. So and 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 also I think there are many examples of restrictions and censorship really being a cure worse than the disease uh, when it comes to trying and counter um, uh, hateful extremism uh, and and trying to protect democracy against its 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 enemies. Well, there's a couple of things if you don't mind to tease out there. I mean, first and foremost. I think it's it's just so critically important to draw out one of your central themes that you've just spoken on, but what you've written on. There's real value in free speech, not only to societies, but particularly to minorities. So I think of the likes, oh, in more recent times, you've got Martin Luther King, uh, Gandhi uh, in India. I mean, boy, small groups against massive forces, but one of the most incredible tools they had was the ability to speak. And yet we seem to have, a, I think, a somewhat paradox developing certainly in Western societies and in this country, Jacob, that um, that ladder is being pulled up and, and often actually by some minorities who who think they've they've attained that enlightenment, everything's perfect now. Um, no one else is allowed to, to to speak. So I suppose first and foremost, just to once again stress if you if how the benefits of free speech have flowed through history, but why well are you seeing that ladder being pulled up now and why? <laughs> Well, I think there's. I think free speech is a very difficult concept for human beings to wrap the, their minds uh, around. I think we 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 like it in the abstract, and we especially like it when we're sort of on the the end of persecution and when we're the the voiceless, the powerless. But then, when we come into a position of power, we convince ourselves that limitations on free speech are necessary to uh, to, to to ensure everything that is good and sacred. <laughs> Uh, and and that's a, a long story. So you know, Christians were a persecuted uh, sect under the Roman Empire. Then it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire, and suddenly Christians start persecuting pagans as well as each other. 
so, so that's that, that that that's one example, uh, and 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 that sort of is is a, is a loop throughout history that that, that many of those who fought for free speech are, are, are perfectly willing to give it up. You could also look at late 19th century, early 20th century socialists. Now they were persecuted, hounded throughout throughout Europe. Uh, and then uh, when the Bolsheviks came into power in, uh, in, in Russia and established the, the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, the first very first thing they do they did was to do away with free speech, never to be uh, reinstated. Um, so, so, so unfortunately, that that is a uh, that is a trend. But when it comes to minorities in in uh, in the West, I think uh, it's it's really playing a dangerous game. Let me give you an example. So, I, I'm uh, the, the I mentioned the cartoon affairs in Denmark, where uh, a number of Muslim groups then demanded that our dormant uh, blasphemy ban should be. Uh, should be brought back into life, and the editors of this newspaper should be punished, or or uh, that hate speech should be interpreted so broadly as to prohibit the the mocking of um, of religious uh, figures. Um, and and some on 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 the left um, were sympathetic to this idea because they saw the cartoons as punching down on a, a minority. But what then happened was that a sort of center right government came into power. Uh, and uh, due to uh, terrorism and, and debates about uh, Islam and integration, suddenly there were these proposals to limit the religious speech of minorities, uh, of, of, well, basically of, of Muslims in Denmark. And several laws were passed that 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 didn't formally, but in reality, was were targeted against Muslims, and, and therefore really curtailed the, the rights of Muslims to, to religious speech in, in Denmark. And so when you're a minority and you're, and, and you're willing to compromise free speech, you're really only a, ever a political majority away from being the target rather than the beneficiary of laws against uh, hatred and, and offense. You actually, you see some of the same things with the um, with the um, uh, Race Relations Act, I think it was called in in, uh, in 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 the UK. So in the 60s, parts of that is is a law meant to uh, criminalizing uh, stirring up hatred. And 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 some of the very first people that were prosecuted under it were these black activists who were who who were supposed to be <laughs> the beneficiaries of, of of this law. Whereas whereas um, influential white uh, politicians who were sort of race baiting were, were not prosecuted. So, 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 so that's why I, I believe that minorities benefit immensely from from uh, from from free speech. Um, it's basically the only safeguard they have against majoritarian um, uh, backlash uh, against them. Something which has been a frequent recurrent theme throughout human history that we have this um, uh, to- uh, tendency towards intolerance against those who look differently from us, who think differently from us, who believe differently uh, from us. And, and unfortunately, a tendency which is unlikely to, uh, to, to, to uh, be purged completely from, 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 from humans in the foreseeable future. And therefore, we need free speech as a safeguard, even if it gives air sometimes to uh, uh, intolerance, but I also, you know, I, I, I honestly believe that as a society, we're also safer knowing 
that people hold extreme views, that people reject uh, scientific truths and so on. I, I want to know that those people are out there so that we can engage with them. And some of them are probably beyond argumentation, but then at least we know who they are. We know and, and you know, we can study and we can see what are the, what you know, what are they, um, you know, what characterizes these people who believe in this? Why uh, is there something that we can do to stop recruitment and so on, rather than using uh, the, the blunt instrument of, of censorship, which anyway in the digital age is very unlikely to be uh, effective because it'll tend to filter down to sort of darker places of the web into sort of dark uh, echo chambers uh, in in, uh, in apps and, and, and so on. It won't surprise you that I'm, I'm in full agreement that it's the old adage that sunlight's the best disinfectant. And yep, there's some absolutely uh, crazy views out there, awful, intolerant, bigoted views, but actually having them out in public where we can, uh, as you say, analyze, research, uh, argue back and show their falsities. I just think there's so much better. We've, we've certainly seen here in New Zealand and other jurisdictions I've been looking at that the attempt, if you will, to suppress, censor, isolate some people doesn't change their views from what I can see. It just pushes them underground. And I think, Jacob, you make, says me to you, who's the expert, but it, it they find other ways of, of spreading that information through channels that we, we can't control rather than bring it out. Sure. And, you know, it, it might be that you hinder some from, from, from being sort of stumbling on a um, dark corner of the internet and, and tumbling down a rabbit hole. But, but what, we tend to see, and, and of, of course, the research on all this is in flux, but, but there's some research at least that shows that disinformation uh, and propaganda is not very effective at, at convincing people, you know, to become big. It, it's, it's, it's mostly effective when you are sort of preaching to the choir. So if you have a deeply polarized society, then those, if you, if you then use disinformation and propaganda um, to sort of uh, whip up those who are already polarized and radicalized, uh, then it might have some uh, effect. But it's not like if you spread Trumpist uh, propaganda about the election being stolen in the U.S., that suddenly Democrats are also likely to uh, to, to, to start uh, believing uh, in, in, in those conspiracy theories. Um, so, uh, so, 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 yeah, and and that, and I also think you know, basically, in a democracy, a democracy is based, um, you know, those who are in power derive their power from the people, and so the the people should obviously have the right to criticize, scrutinize, and and speak their minds on on those who who govern in their names, even if they say nasty things about those who govern, or if they reject the very system that they're being governed by. And uh, that I think uh, is part and parcel of, of democracy. It's also part and parcel of individual uh, autonomy, which I, which I also think is, is, is baked into to liberal uh, open democracies. Um, and so ultimately, if we decide that some people are too credulous or fickle or stupid uh, to be uh, to be trusted with unfiltered information, that is sort of a very elitist, top-down approach to free speech. And, and we see that in the history of free speech again and again, that 
you have these clashing concepts, an egalitarian conception of free speech, which is sort of bottom up uh, um, versus an elitist one where it, it, institutional gatekeepers insist that that the public sphere must be must be gatekeeped by 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 uh, those who know better uh, in order for the sort of the unwashed mob not to be led astray by dangerous demagogues and, and ideas and and I think you know I don't trust anyone to possess that knowledge also just because as human beings uh, we're not altruistic uh, you know we, we're likely to abuse that power for our own benefits and sometimes we may not even consciously know that we're abusing that power, but we're just deeply biased and, and flawed and imperfect. Again, it won't surprise you that I'm in full <laughs> agreement. I'm, I'm very concerned about the top-down approach. And what often strikes me, we've touched on this uh, a little bit, is, is what I call the paradox, but it's a hypocrisy as well, that um, often people will, if you will, rightly rage against uh, theocracies or a priestly class um, ruling and saying what is in and out a very dogmatic approach, and yet often those same people then find themselves doing that as well once they've got uh, power. And I'm, I, I don't know if you've come across in your work and research a philosopher called uh, René Girard, um, and he talks of something called mimetic theory, the long and short being that as humans we end up mimicking each other. And you use two examples of the Russian Revolution where they used the socialists wonderfully for their sake, used uh, all the free press and propaganda they could. And the moment they got power, they slammed it shut. Uh, and the church, the Catholic church in particular, and I say that as as one, um, yeah, dominated for years of what you could and couldn't read um, and rightly got rid of that so people could be free. But there's just this funny dynamic that, yeah, once, once groups, that they rage against dogmatism, but I think you said earlier, once they obtain power, they sort of, end up being quite dogmatic themselves. And I just see yeah. it more and more in the West at the moment. Yeah, I think and I think it's actually one of the built-in flaws of free speech uh, is that um, it does not provide the same degree of social cohesion and unity as, say, nationalism or religion. Mm. Um, so it, uh, nationalism and religion are incredibly powerful at binding people together. You know, religion uh, comes from, from uh, actually means, derive, derives this meaning from, from like binding together. Um, uh, and um, free speech, you know, when you're, if you're living in an authoritarian state or if you're being oppressed, then free speech can sort of guard, the, can, can create a certain degree of cohesion because you're, you're being oppressed and you need free speech to oppose those who oppress you. But once you've attained freedom, free speech suddenly amplifies uh, disagreement between those who were previously comrades uh, in arms. And, and so it doesn't provide the same degree of, of, of social cohesion and unity that religion or, or nationalism, for instance, can provide. Um, and therefore, it becomes tempting to try and clamp down on free speech because suddenly you see it uh, no longer as essential um, for society, but as dangerous because it gives a voice to uh, to, to groups who are out to to destroy uh, society, um, and we've seen that uh, again and again. I already mentioned some 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 examples, but but one of my favorite examples is is that of John Milton, the the English poet who wrote the Arabic back in in 1644, I think, 
Um, and uh, he did that as a response to Parliament uh, reintroducing uh, pre-publication censorship licensing uh, in 1643. Um, and, and, and it's a very eloquent defense of press freedom and an attack on, on uh, pre-publication censorship. But when you read it more carefully, you, you quickly find out that John Milton is not really principled. For instance, he is, uh, to put it mildly, not a fan of Catholicism. And so he does not believe at all in tolerance of what he would call popery. Uh, and 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 uh, nor nor he, he basically free speech to John Milton means free speech of mainline Protestant sects, not Catholics, not those who uh, not not sort of more radical Protestant sects, um, and and not those who are sort of seditious. Uh, so so that's a very good example of what I in the book call Milton's curse. Uh, the the the. the the um, selective and unprincipled defense of free speech. Free speech for me, but not for thee. And, and that, unfortunately, is a recurrent theme throughout uh, the history of, uh, of free speech and, and very much um, on vogue right now, also in liberal democracies, where um, leaders in, in Western democracies have talked themselves into uh, believing that free speech is now as much a threat as a as a pillar of democracy. Well, that's a good segue, actually, to a, a recent UN speech of the New Zealand Prime Minister. But just on the Milton, uh, John Milton, uh, it's not his words, but something I've often heard through my life is that the notion that error has no rights. Uh, a very uh, insidious thought for some that yeah error has no rights therefore it can't be spoken it can be clamped down where you know the fundamental question of course is what is erroneous who gets to choose yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but um, you, you're talking about western leaders and look there's there's a number that we could um, use but actually for listeners to understand too that Jacob is actually coming down to New Zealand um, courtesy of the free speech union in November so appropriate to talk a bit about New Zealand um, the New Zealand Prime Minister recently in front of the United Nations uh, said that words uh, can be weapons of war. Uh, and she went on to talk about misinformation and disinformation. Um, for me, that uh, ties into what you were just saying about where a lot of Western leaders um, mm -hmm. are going, yeah. effectively trying to, to, limit, yeah, to limit speech. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, so so I didn't read the in, entire speech, uh, and and so uh, I don't know the what what she said uh, exactly. But but uh, what it it, it does um, tie into what other so someone like Emmanuel Macron, for instance, who's who said at one point that that you know uh, the internet was was being used uh, better by the enemies of democracy uh, and had become sort of a weapon turned against uh, democracy. You also seen a, a change in the rhetoric of someone like Barack Obama when he was a junior senator in 2006, where he was very much sort of the underdog fighting against the established uh, system. He praised how the internet uh, provided him to, to say what he wanted without censorship. And then in 2020, after the US election, he saw uh, online disinformation as the as the biggest threat against uh, American democracy. So this is a, an instance of what I call uh, elite panic that we've seen again and again throughout history, where you see this egalitarian versus the elitist model of a free speech in clash. Um, and that tends to break out and erupt 
whenever the, the public sphere is expanded through new revolutionary communication technology or by extending um, new uh, speech rights to, to previously uh, disenfranchised groups. And, and here, of course, the new powerful uh, equalizer of speech, if you like, uh, has been the internet and the digital era. So in the beginning, democracies and, and most sort of um, uh, people um, in, in open democracy, I think, saw the internet as a powerful agent of change for good. It would basically make censorship um, you know, impossible. It would leave censorship as a sort of an, an, an old relic of the analog age. And, and there was nothing that authoritarian states uh, could do to stop the, the, the gospel, the good word of democracy and freedom spreading to, to all parts of the world. And, and the, the Arab Spring seemed to be uh, the perfect example of that. Then, of course, the Arab Spring did not play out the way uh, that, that most had hoped. And uh, what happened was also that the, the internet became much more centralized. In the beginning, the, the internet was sort of much more radically decentralized, but then it became much more centralized top-down with these huge mega platforms that suddenly had uh, billions of people on them. And that amplified voices, um, including voices that were extreme, voices that spread conspiracy theories, and voices that... Uh, really undermined established political institutional uh, authority, as well as the traditional media, of course. They no longer, you know, if you go back 15 years or 20 years, even though on paper everyone in New Zealand had uh, free speech, in reality it would be politicians, it would be editors, journalists, a few prominent uh, intellectuals who were the one, ones who had a, a voice in public, whereas your ordinary, your ordinary Kiwi would 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 have a hard time getting into the public sphere because they would depend on someone, uh, on a gatekeeper allowing them access to the public sphere. Of course, they could stand on on a soapbox in the local neighborhood, but but that wouldn't travel very far. But now, you know, uh, people who would would previously have had no chance of of making it into the public sphere can suddenly create you know, a popular YouTube channel with hundreds of thousands of, of viewers can, 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 can have huge social media followings. Uh, and that is unnerving, I think, to a lot of um, um, politicians and people in, in, in traditional media. And sometimes for good reasons. Sometimes, as I said, there are people who spread uh, crazy ideas. And, and there are costs and harms associated with the internet. I think, you know, um, it, the attack on, on, on the Capitol on January 6th in, in the U.S. Would, would not have, have happened without social media. Um, um, but, of course, you know, previous technologies, you know, pamphlets could be used to to spread anti-Semitism leading to pogroms in, in Europe. Uh, the radio uh, was being used as, as, as part of the genocide in Rwanda and, and, uh, and so on. And, you know, word of mouth uh, could also lead to, 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 um, to horrific um, mass scale atrocities. Um, but I think what we still do is we lose sight of all the benefits of free speech and access to information and focus almost myopically on, on the dark sides. Uh, and I think that that is a recipe for adopting bad policy and for, for cures that are worse than the disease. And I think too, um, to pull out one thread, there's always going to be gatekeepers 
Um, you know, free free speech is never a um, a, a perfect uh, utopia. There's always gatekeepers. I think you make a really valid point that you know, thinking in the New Zealand context, but it applies anywhere. Yeah, the ordinary Kiwi of 20, 30, 50 years ago uh, probably wouldn't get an opinion piece in in the paper. There were gatekeepers then, and there are there are now. Um, but I suppose one of the things which worries me, certainly here, but when I again look across overseas, is at one level we're dropping blasphemy laws in New Zealand. Actually, through a colleague of mine, um, repealed New Zealand's blasphemy laws. They hadn't been used for a long time, but they were on the books. So they're gone. Um, yet we seem paradoxically to be bringing in new forms of blasphemy. So you know, insulting God, you can do that if you want. Um, but the new blasphemy laws in New Zealand, there's talk of um, hate speech. Uh, laws that, you know, if you're saying words that could cause harm or offence, we've got more codes of uh, conduct, uh, Jacob, than I can poke a stick at these days from our universities and hospitals, even want to bring them into parliament. Um, uh, Any thoughts on those, particularly around, like I see you tweeting recently actually around uh, codes of conduct. They they seem to me uh, a thin end of a wedge to once again control speech, thought, and it's even flowing, if I might, between your uh, public work in your private life. We've had people in New Zealand in their own time outside of work who pu- put out an opinion and they get fired because their company decides they don't like them uh, mm-hmm. and it offends the code of conduct. So we seem to be replacing one set of blasphemy uh, laws with another. That's probably what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, uh, <clears throat> this is, um, on the one hand, I think that um, – a culture of free speech is 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 more decisive ultimately than than how the law is drafted on paper because a culture of free speech is what sustains legal protections and by a culture of free speech I mean a, a critical mass of societies um, viewing and accepting social dissent as a benefit to society and and, and being willing to tolerate uh, that and and basically viewing free speech as the antithesis to violence and one that allows people of very different ideas about politics, philosophy, religion, to live together as neighbors, compatriots, um, spouses, uh, and and, and, and so on, rather than than go to, to war. Uh, with each other over these uh, ideas, um, but it, you know the culture of free speech is also very difficult to put on a formula. So there are all kinds of social norms and restraints that on speech that that are necessary for for human life to to, for, to flourish. If if you were to invite me into your house. Uh, for a dinner, uh, there are things I would uh, I would say and, and things I I, I wouldn't uh, say, uh, but but those are sort of they can't really be put on a formula. They 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 have to be sort of spontaneously uh, evolve, uh, and they are also things that you know if I were uh, to uh, take advantage of your hospitality, drink, have a few too many beers, and then suddenly suddenly start to insult you. Then you know that's not something that should put me in prison. You would be perfectly entitled to throw me out of your house. Uh, that would not be a violation of my my speech rights. But but if I were to be arrested, that that would that would be pushing it too far. Um, so I think that there are certain institutions where these uh, speech codes will be especially problematic. So I think that universities, for instance. Um, institutions of higher education should very robustly protect um, um, 
viewpoint diversity. That, so the, the fact that you might have someone who, who, who has a heterodox idea that clashes with whatever is the orthodox view uh, within a faculty or a university, that, that, that should be protected. And, and you should also be protected if you're a faculty member or a student and you write something that people find dis, distasteful on, on, on social media. When it comes to employment, um, uh, th then, uh, you know, I, I think it becomes really unhealthy if, uh, if, 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 if companies generally, you know, try to police whatever their employees uh, say. On the other hand, of course, there are also things where, you, you know, uh, certain positions where you, uh, for instance, if I am the executive director of a of an NGO that pushes for free speech. So if I were to go out tomorrow and advocate for censorship, then <laughs> uh, I would I would expect my my board of directors to get rid of me. Um, and and, uh, and and I think that's that's how it would have to be. So so what I'm basically trying to say is that when it comes to the culture of free speech, it's not always possible to put it on a formula. The problem with this, though, is that so much of of speech today is practiced on on private platforms. So it's no longer the classic relationship between state and individual where it's much more simple to say, oh, uh, the state should refrain uh, from punishing speech. Now it's these private behemoths that that, that make uh, decisions. And, you know, you know, decisions are inevitable, as you said, um, about where to draw the line. Uh, but unfortunately, free speech restrictions and pushing for them have been weaponized also because states and civil society organizations have found out that these platforms now act as choke points. So they, they are, are, you know, pushing them to restrict more and more speech is a, um, is, is, is a very useful way to try and restrict certain ideas that you don't want to be circulating. And the sad thing that I observe um, is that actually the more attempts at control of information to try and create uh, cohesion or harmony is actually seeing more and more division. Um, it's one of the things I try to argue into the New Zealand Parliament frequently is yeah, all these attempts at control, uh, to control media, control social media, to put out hate speech legislation, employ or deploy rather more codes of conduct are not creating a more cohesive society at all. In fact, it's quite, quite the opposite. I'm conscious of your time, Jakob. So one, if I might, one last question. It's around media because you've written around and rightly the need to, if you will, in my language, to protect uh, media and thinking particularly mainstream media for their ability to speak. We've, we've seen the likes of Trump, uh, Bolsonaro and others, um, Bolsonaro, sorry, and others attack media, undermining them, which is, in my view, wrong. But to me, we also have a bit of a conundrum uh, where at times it seems a lot of the media are also supporting um, the likes of hate speech laws and codes of conduct. They're becoming quite monological themselves. Um, Sir Roger Scruton of late memory, the British thinker, talked about the censorship of sort of the conservative voice in his his view. So do you see a bit of a paradox, or I, I'm sorry that seems my word for the day, but at one level we must protect media and their ability to speak, yet they at the same time seem to be censoring views themselves, or some seem to be. Yeah, of, of course, you know, newspapers, you know, I, th I think that it's, it's crucial to have sort of a, a division of labour and knowledge production uh, in the sense that, you know, you go online and that's just, all kinds of views, and hopefully you're skeptical. And then uh, you, uh, when when you go to a policy newspaper, you have a higher degree of trust that they've gone through an editorial 
process, fact-checked and lived up to, to, to journalistic principles. And of course, editing a newspaper is, 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 uh, is, is not censorship. That, that's what we expect them and, and want them to do. But I think it's true that traditional media, uh, because they've acted as sort of privileged gatekeepers, institutional gatekeepers, now have see not only their business model, but also their role uh, as those who shape the public debate as being attacked by social media. And so they have strayed from principle and tried to sort of sort of keep up their uh, the, the, the um, sort of the, 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 the privileged position, if you like, of, of being these gatekeepers, uh, even though the pillars are crumbling, they're, they're sort of scrambling to, to, to keep them uh, together. Uh, and that has led to traditional media calling for more regulation of, of social media uh, and, uh, and so on, which I think um, is short-sighted because politicians, uh, you know, they might form a, an, an alliance with politicians on that, but those politicians are then very likely to use those laws to say, well, we don't only want to target disinformation in on social media. We also want to do it on traditional media. In fact, a commission here in Denmark was was recently established, looking uh, to sort of um, to tighten um, rules of, of responsibility and liability of, of of traditional media, based on the premise that the Danish media is is, is acting recklessly and, and become a danger to democracy. So, so almost these Trumpian vibes, um, and 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 so and and I think you know so to a large degree, I think. And traditional media have, have been paving <laughs> the road uh, to, towards their own regulation themselves by, by pushing uh, um, this unprincipled line. Well, I think that's actually, again, says me, that's what happens when you push uh, unprincipled lines. They end up swallowing up, uh, you know, the very people, you know, the, it, who are trying to run them. You know, this is where consistency, principle, logic, um, and good values, I'd say, hold us in, in better stead, which, again, is one of the reasons, Jacob, I try to be a great, well, as strong a champion of free speech as I can, uh, because I think it's the principal position, even though, it, 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 unfortunately, there is a small ugly side, as we say. There are those people who put free speech in a very, very bad light. But as you keep reinforcing both today, but through your book um, and your continuing work, there are so many more uh, benefits just one comment from me, because, of course, as you're heading down to New Zealand, it will be fascinating when you are here to observe um, our universities, for example, in general terms, are becoming quite monological. Um, we're seeing academics who have uh, different views uh, pushed out, uh, derided and decried. Uh, there's lots of deplatforming of speakers now. Uh, and we also seem to have a, a growth of these disinformation groups uh, who move very quickly from uh, debating matters of, of fact to uh, political beliefs. In other words, disinformation spreads from saying, hey, the world is not flat, uh, the world's not flat uh, sort of debates to hold on, you hold the wrong political view, therefore you are uh, pushing misinformation. So quite a, quite a dangerous set of dynamics down here. So it'll be interesting to have your observations while you're, while you're visiting. Well, I certainly look forward to it. So ladies and gentlemen, as I say, it's been an absolute um, honor to have uh, Jakob uh, here, as I say, he's the author of Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. And really importantly for listeners here in New Zealand, he's here 
in November. He's coming down uh, to talk to the likes of the Free Speech Union and others. Actually, follow the Free Speech Union's page to, to find out more. Um, but, Jakob, look, thank you for the work and advocacy that you you continue to do. It's incredibly appreciated, and I'm very grateful for your time here today. Thank you.